0: take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, it's not uh, the one that may be just right where you know where it is. If you go to the middle of your Bible to Psalms and keep going right a little bit to Proverbs, it is the book after Proverbs. We're going to be looking a little bit at that book today. Um, Let me ask you a question as we kind of get started and as you're finding your way into the book. Um, anybody here ever had something in life that you got really excited about, you were really pumped up about, or you'd gotten great recommendations for, or someone had suggested it to you, or you read about it on the internet, or you saw a television program about it, or you saw a video online, and then when you experienced it, it was all right. Anybody ever had that before? Like, you get really excited about a new place to eat. Somebody comes and goes, listen, they've got the best you've ever had. You're not going to believe it. It's going to be awesome. And then you go and you sit down and they bring the food out and you eat it and you're like, eh, it's good. It's okay. Or, man, this is terrible. I've never trusted what they recommend ever again, Right? We all have those little disappointments in life where something gets expectations built up and then when we get into the actual moment or the actual place or the actual experience, it's just not what we thought it would be. Let me ask you a deeper question. Have you ever felt that way about life in general? That man, is. There seems to be something missing. Or I I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something just not right. Or, you you know, I I don't understand why this happened in my life. Or why this never did. Why I didn't get to do that. You become envious about someone else's experience or about life in general. Over the last uh, year or so, I've become a fan of F1 racing. Anybody else here? I know David Jackson over there. Here we go. Anybody else here even know or care about F1 racing? All right, Davis, for me and you. Oh, we got one back there. I see you. I see you. All right. I see that hand. All right. Here's the thing. A year and a half ago, I didn't care anything about it. I've gotten into it my drivers and all that. And I don't want to spoil the race if you haven't watched it this morning, but Max is still good. All right. Um. And you know how sometimes in life, you just live in life, you don't think anything going on, nothing, nothing has gotten under your scrolling thing today. And then like you, you put on social media and you go to Instagram, and just hypothetically, your nephew is posting pictures from the paddock with all the drivers at the F1 race in Mon- in, over in Monza, Italy. And suddenly you're like, "Why have I never gotten to go to an F1 race?" Right? do did I get to go to Italy? I've never been to Italy. I want to go to Italy. And like suddenly you feel like you're missing out. You know, the, you know, the kids call that FOMO, right? Probably not the kids anymore. They don't do. But what used to be kids used to call it that. Right? Fear of missing out. Like what's going on? And suddenly if enough of those things begin to stack up in your life, you start to question where you're going and what you've done and what you haven't done. And all of us at some point in our lives start to get to that point where we realize we may not have as much life ahead of us as we have behind us. And if we're going to get going on what we wanted to get done or need to get done or want to see or do, we got to get going. And then we've got circumstances and life and health and... Age issues that prevent us from doing the things that we wanted to do when we were young that we couldn't afford to do when we were young. We might could afford to do them now, but we can't physically do them. You think, man, this is ex- you're really lifting us up this morning, Pastor. And we know we're going through your midlife crisis with you right here, all right? Here's the thing. All of us have those questions at times in our lives, and one of the things that comforts me about the Bible is that it is written by people that have similar questions. Why did this happen, God? Why did that not happen? People that are disappointed with God, wondering what they're waiting on, when this is going to happen, working that out through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us to deal with. And there is no book in the Bible that deals with that question better and more accurately than the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the first verses of Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at the argument of Ecclesiastes through some points in the middle. And then we're going to end with the last verse of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to ask the question, what do we learn from that? Because what you have in Ecclesiastes is this strange kind of thing where you had somebody working through, looking back on their lives and the lessons they've learned. And it is not the most optimistic book in the Bible. In fact, there, if you just pull some of, you know, which is always dangerous in the Bible, if you just pull some verses out of Ecclesiastes on their own, they call some questions and a little like, okay, what's going on with this guy? For instance, in verse, chapter 9, verse 2, he says, Everything ends the same for everyone, so what's worth it? The same fate awaits the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad. We all get the same. Or in chapter 7, verse 16, he says, Don't be excessively righteous or overly wise. Why wear yourself out trying to be good? That doesn't sound like a good church thing, right? At one point he tells them, wear fine clothes and never be without cologne on. Now there might be some of us that need to hear that, right? Then there's the one that gives the Baptist issues. Wine makes life happy. And money is the answer for everything. Like, what? I don't believe we've heard that before, Pastor. Or or this philosophical thing. If a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place that it falls, there it will be. It's deep, right? But does it make a sound if no one's around is the question. reminds me of my uncle one time that told us, hey, if I'm not here, when y'all get back, I'll be gone. Got it. Or this politically incorrect verse in chapter 7, verse 28. Among all people, I found one upright man in a thousand, but I could not find an upright woman. That's Ecclesiastes. That's not me. That's not not me, all right? It's the Bible. So you're like, what's going on here? Well, here's the thing, all right? Ecclesiastes is written in two perspectives, two voices. There is a narrator and there is a complainer. There's one that is complaining about life, speaking about life, talking about life, and giving his honest assessment of what life is like. And then you've got a narrator that begins and ends it and interjects along the way at times. But the problem is twofold. One, it never tells us, hey, now the narrator speaks. It's not like a play where it has narrator, colon, here's his lines, and then complainer, colon. So you have to figure it out as you're reading it. Here's the second issue, the complainer, and the narrator, most scholars believe, are the same person. Right? Who who do we think wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon. Now, what do you know about Solomon? Wise. What else do we know about Solomon? Rich. Wives. Wise. Wives. Those two don't necessarily go together. Wise and a thousand wives and concubines, and rich, like, had it all. Politically successful, economically successful. Had a great governorship of Israel as the king. He was in charge of them. He did a great job of a building program. He built things that are still considered to this day marvels in the way they were built at the time they were built. And when he gets to the end of his life, he decides to look back on it. And he speaks as the narrator and then as the complainer and he mixes it back and forth. This is how he starts his entire book, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. See, see why we think it's Solomon? It's kind of there, right? The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, verse 2. Absolute futility, says the teacher, absolute futility, everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun?" So, just to let you know, by the way, that there are people that when, when, when we, we finalized through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and through God giving people the words that they were to speak to make the Bible, the 66 books that we have, there were some people that didn't think Ecclesiastes ought to be a part of it because they said it starts negative and it ends negatively. It is the most pessimistic book. And yet I would say it's the most honest and he starts and he says, this is the reality. Everything is futile. It's the opposite of the Lego movie. Everything is not awesome. Right? It is futile. It is useless. That word there in the original Hebrew is chevel. Y'all you'll say that with me. You got your little... <laughs> All right, you ready? No, don't, don't let anything come out while you're doing it. But here, you ready? Hevil. I was okay, alright? Hevel, and it is used, and it means meaningless, empty. Vanity is the way the Old King James translates it. It is used 38 times in 12 chapters. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But our, our interpreters today, our scholars say that, that that doesn't really get to the essence of what the word means because it means more than just empty or futile. That the the word behind that literally means that it is like a puff of smoke that appears sturdy from a distance maybe or uh, one of the examples that I heard is how we view clouds. And you remember when you were a kid and you looked up at the clouds and it just felt like you could, like, some of them you could, like, stand on. Like, they they looked like they were massive and had structure. And then you fly through them. First time I ever flew in my life, this is the most Baptist story you can have, I was the youth participant on the music search committee for my church. Had never flown and we flew to Virginia. And I was sitting next to a guy that decided, uh, love him, he was the chairman of our committee. He began to talk in the most southern accent you can. It's like, I believe this thing's going to get off the ground. And started yelling, that was his routine when you flew. And I remember flying, and just being in, I, he gave me the window seat so I could see. And when you got to those clouds and you flew through them, they just are nothing. Just wisp of smoke or air. And the author of Ecclesiastes says everything is like that. And then throughout the book he gives us some specifics about what is useless or makes life seem like it is useless. He gives us these examples. He says, first of all, success leaves you hollow. Getting what you want leaves you with an emptiness still inside. Look at what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. When I consider all that I'd accomplished and what i had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile, there's that word again, worthless like the air in a pursuit of the wind, trying to catch the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon had, as we mentioned when you think about him, almost anything and everything someone in his day could want to have. He had wealth that staggered people. People came from other countries to view his wealth. He had wisdom beyond anyone that lived in the time. He had building programs, massive infrastructure programs. He was one of the most revered kings of his day. He, along with his dad, had taken a fledgling group of people that God had set apart and built them within just a few years to a major nation in the world. And not just those kind of professional accomplishments... He literally means here, if there was something that could make you feel good in life, he did it. From alcohol, and food, and parties, and women. And he says, when he gets to the end of it, as he's looking back on it, he sees all of his success and thinks it is futile and like chasing the wind. He says, when you look at life, what you realize is just because you get what you want doesn't mean it makes you fulfilled. There's some quotes from famous people that echo Solomon, Jim Carrey, who had a string of movies several years ago that is almost unrivaled among others and then kind of crashed out of the entertainment business for a while, says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they see that is not the answer. Or Katy Perry, who famously left Christian music to do pop music, said this on Instagram, 100 million digital singles and still insecure. Or Oscar Wilde, the well-known writer, So there are two tragedies in life. One is not getting what you want and the other is. The thing that Solomon says is we have all of these things on earth and I tried everything possible to make myself feel good and it was vanity. He said on top of that, not only does success leave you hollow, but secondly, correct behavior doesn't always lead to blessing. Just because you do right doesn't mean you get rewarded for it. In fact, sometimes those that do right, that do the right thing, are punished for doing the right thing. In chapter 9, for instance, um, he he gives this story of a town of just a few people being sieged by a powerful king and there is a, a poor Um, kind of insignificant person in the community, a man that comes up with a plan and his plan is so wise that it saves the city. But when it comes time to give credit to those who save the city, the rich and the powerful get the credit and the one that was poor is forgotten. The one that did right is not rewarded. He says you can follow every single wise decision you can, and in the end, it may not end in what you expect. Some of that is because of the frailty of human wisdom, but he would also say some of that is because life feels random. Look at what he says in Ecclesiastes 9. Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, or bread to the wise, or riches to the discerning, or favor to the skillful. Rather, time and chance happen to all of them. It's a randomness that is there. Some people get lucky and some people don't. Some people make it and some don't. Some do the exact right thing all the time. And in the end, you will find out that you got nothing for it. And some do wrong all the time. And in the end, they are rewarded. He says, so success doesn't bring me happiness. I can't guarantee that what I'm going to get on the end is a blessing, even if I do the right thing. And then he makes a point throughout the whole thing that human justice systems fail us. That there is no justice in the world that is applied perfectly. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, he says, there is futility that is done on the earth. There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve and there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. I say that this too is Hevel. A cloud. Doesn't make sense. He says, "Uh, I've tried success and it left me empty and I realized that even if I do the wisest thing, I don't always get a blessing in return and that justice doesn't seem to be applied fairly. That good people get bad things to happen to them, that bad things, bad people get good things to happen to them. He says, and so I look back on my life and I think about all that's going on and I just realize that no matter what I do, it feels like there is a randomness to life that doesn't guarantee an outcome. And as a result, I am dissatisfied with my life. There's this interesting pattern, and this isn't a point on there, but you can see it throughout the book of Ecclesiastes if you go back and read it. One of the things that he says kind of again and again, is that having wisdom, now remember, he had more wisdom than anybody else, having wisdom actually makes you less happy because you're more aware of how bad things are. And the more you know, the less happy you are about it. There is a correlation for us as People living here and now, we know more instantaneously about what is happening in the rest of the world than any generation that has ever lived. And it has not made us happier, all the statistics say, that it has made us more depressed, more alone, more cynical of the world in which we live. And he says that's what happens when you live. Life happens unfairly. You get success. It doesn't fill you up. It makes you hollow. It even makes you realize how much you still miss. You don't see things happen like they should happen. And then he ends by saying, and then you die and someone else throws away your legacy. You die and you leave stuff behind and you leave it behind and they waste it. That's what he says in Ecclesiastes. I hated. All my work that I labored at under the sun, because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom and knowledge and skill, he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it. It is futile and a great wrong for what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors out under the sun? His days are filled with grief. His occupation is sorrowful. And even at my night, his mind does not rest. This too is futile. Aren't you glad you came on Labor Day weekend? Man, this is good pastor. feels so good right now. This is the reality of life, right? Here's the thing, we know his story. We know what happens to all that he built. His son comes after him and doesn't take care of what he's built. In fact, his son comes after him and his advisors come to him and it's like, man, you know, to get all that your dad accomplished, it took a lot from our people. And the older advisor said, here's what you need to do. You need to lay off of them for a little bit and endear themselves... Yourself to them. Allow them to see you have a heart and compassion. Give them a rest. Give them a break on their taxes. Give them a little something to do. Let them rest from their work that they've been doing to build these projects. And the people will love you. And then his younger advisors came. He goes, no, no, no. You got to show them you're stronger than your dad. You got to work them harder than your dad did. You got to tax them more than your dad because they need to know who's in control. Do y'all know whose advice he took? The younger guys. What happened to Israel? Well, it wasn't Israel very soon. It was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It divided in half. Solomon built a great kingdom that within a generation was gone. There are studies out there that say now that the more successful you are and the more you leave to your kids, the less responsible they are with it. So go spend it all, parents. Parents. Don't leave anything, right? That's the moral. That's what the lesson of today is. It's not the lesson. So he spends most of the book complaining about all of these things. And there's a little part of this that throughout, we'll go back to the first verse in just a moment. Throughout, even when we've read about the futility and all that, there's another phrase that comes up again and again. It's not 38 times, but it's over 25 times in the book that there's another phrase that comes up, and it's in that very first three verses of Ecclesiastes. And you look back at it, it says the words of the teacher, son of David, King of Jerusalem, absolute futility, says the teacher, absolute futility, everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? And throughout the rest of the book, that phrase, under the sun, comes again and again and again and again. And what he basically uses that device as is to say that if you live your life on this earth, with only this earth in mind, then absolutely everything you do is meaningless. That if your whole purpose in life is just about here and now, then you have lost the narrative and it will be meaningless because the things of this earth will fade away. When you get to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, you have the complainer give one final word and then the narrator starts to give some direction. Over in chapter 12 it says, absolute futility, says the teacher, everything is futile. That's the last words that the complainer says in the book. And then the narrator says, In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. We're trying. We're going for it. He goes on to say this. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God, keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act of judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. The narrator says you're absolutely right. If you look at it just under the sun here and now, everything is meaningless. There doesn't seem to be any justice. There doesn't seem to be any fairness But when you look at it from a perspective that is not under the sun, you get a different view. And when you look back through the book, there are some little tidbits of things we see that remind us of what's important. And the first is this, God is good, so live joyfully. Back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says this I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in his time. And then he says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God when everyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. The idea is that we are to enjoy the gifts of God in our lives and make sure that we're remembering that they come from the Creator and we worship Him and not the created. Enjoy life. Live life out. Tomorrow afternoon is Labor Day and we celebrate celebrating those that work in our world by eating meat a lot of times. That's what we celebrate Fourth of July Memorial Day. We grill out, right? It's the last grill of the summer. And I don't know what we're going to have yet on the menu, but steaks are probably on the menu and I am going to eat it and enjoy it and give thanks to God for it. Because they're good. We enjoy the things in life. We enjoy our families and our Jobs and those things that God has given us, because they're gifts, and we live with the joy that they come from God. Every good gift comes from a love. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. We live in the here and now, thankful to the God that has given it to us. Secondly, in this book, we see—if you look through the ribbon—that God is in control. He is sovereign, so we can live confidently. Now, He talks about that in. And, and Chapter 12, we just read it and it may seem a little weird because he says the sayings of the wise are like cattle prods. That just means that they're to guide us along. The masters are like embedded nails, like they're to give us that, that push that we need towards something, towards what we need to hear, towards the source of the teaching. And then it says the sayings are given by one shepherd. And that's a capitalized S there because what he's saying there is these wise saying that Solomon tried to collect their intention were to guide us toward the wisdom of and the worship of the shepherd, the God, the one that is leading us. And he is the one that is in control. And as he's in control, we can trust him. So God is good, so live joyfully. God is sovereign, so live confidently. Thirdly, God is great, so live humbly. In verse, chapter 3, verse 14, it says, I know that everything God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of Him. He is awesome. Full of awe and wonder we should be when we enter into His presence. And when we live in his world. Just this week I started listening to a book while I'm driving around called The Immaculate World. And it is a study of a guy that is not a believer. He's a scientist. In fact, you can tell that in some of the ways they describe It is a book about the absolute intricacy and amazing traits of the animal kingdom. I'm just like a chapter in and I've had 30 minutes of listening about the sensational ability of dogs to smell and how it protects them and gives them joy from the studies. And he's going to walk through all the senses and the amazing thing that animals can do. And as I'm listening to it, all I can think is, how awesome is our God who created this. How awesome is God. And to think that when He created all of creation, He said, it's good. And when He created us, He said, it's very good. That we hold a unique place in His creation ought to drive us to our knees in humility. And then the last thing we we see in this book is that God is just. So rev reverently. That's the last verses we just read. The entire ending of this book, it says in chapter 12, when all this has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God, keep His commandments, because this is for all humanity. He'll bring every act under judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. He says in the end, God's in control. He's sovereign. He's good. He's wise. He's just. And at some point, He's going to make everything right. Everything right. And so how do we live? We live today for that day. We live now For then, we live for the reality of the moment that God makes it right. Martin Luther once said, there are two days on my calendar. This day and that day. And what he meant by that is, there is here and now and what I can do here and now. And there is the day that Jesus comes again and all is made right. And I'm going to live this day for that day. So what's the conclusion of Ecclesiastes? Yes, here under the sun, everything seems meaningless. We can work and strive and we just build up stuff that doesn't make us feel good inside. It makes us feel hollow and we see the injustice in the world and we realize that things aren't turning out like the world. We're not getting rewarded even when we do the right thing. And in the end of that, we realize that we're just going to die and turn it over to someone that's going to waste our legacy. But that's just the view from under the sun because we serve a God who is great, a God who is good, a God who. Is in control and ultimately he is going to make all things right. So, in the midst of it, in the midst of all that, what do we do? The command, the conclusion is this fear God and keep his commands. This is the end of it all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the reality that this is not all that there is, that this is not all that exists. That you are a God who is good and sovereign and in control. And Lord, that you are the only God that will make all of this right. You're the only one that exists. And because of you, you'll make it right. And so we give thanks to you for that. We pray, Lord, that in the midst of everything you do, in the midst of everything you do, that we would be able to see Your glory and give thanks to You for it. Lord, I pray that here today, if there are those that need to respond to this message, maybe, Lord, they've been feeling that confusion or that that, Lord, that just dissatisfaction and they don't know what to do with it and they don't know, you know, they're at a crossroads of their life making decisions about what to do or where to go or relationships or how things are, are acting in their lives, Lord, and they just don't, they feel abandoned or they feel like they're not getting the answers and they're frustrated, or that today maybe you'd help them to take a step back and to bring that to you and to just say it to you and then be able to be comforted by the fact that you're good, you're great, and you're in control. Lord, we pray that if there are those here today that have never accepted you as Savior, that they would realize that without you, everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity. Everything is just a cloud. And Lord, that you are the only thing that matters. And that in you, as we live our life, because of your love for us, everything matters. So Lord, I pray if there's someone today that hasn't accepted you as their Savior, that you would lead them in that way. And most of all, that we pray that today would be a day when we would rest again in the promises of who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.